Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 17, and I'd ask you to please stand with me as we read God's Word today. I do believe this is a a sacred time as we come together, and it is our privilege throughout the week to meditate upon God's Word and to to study the Word, but also when we gather together to to hear God's Word is uh, God does something among us, even as we read it. Genesis 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you, as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it, and from every man... From every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and of all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations, I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it, to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Lord God, we ask you that you would teach us this day, that you would open our eyes, and that we would see your hope, your goodness, uh, the wonder of who you are as we look at your word today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And please be seated. My wedding ring. A rainbow. A day of rest. A throne. What do these things have in common? They are signs of covenants. Agreements between two parties. Either between people or between God and mankind. My wedding ring, a sign of the covenant that Angela and I made on June 1st, 1991, but before God and many witnesses. 
a rainbow, the sign of the covenant, as we just read, between God and all the earth. A day of rest, a Sabbath, sign of the covenant of law. A throne, a sign of the covenant between God and David, that God would establish his throne forever. Covenants, agreements, even contracts. We make them and we break them consistently. God, on the other hand, is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. We cannot keep covenant, but God does. God is faithful. He can be trusted even when we cannot trust ourselves. And today we'll look at this idea of the covenant, specifically God's covenant with Noah. When asked the first question, though, what is a covenant? Simply put, a covenant is a, a treaty or a pact or an agreement between two parties of either equal or unequal authority. And the concept of covenant is a central unifying theme in Scripture. The Hebrew word means to bind, uh, that which binds parties together. And we see the first usage of the word covenant in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. And in the passage we just read, covenant is used seven times. God made a covenant with Noah. Now this important word signifies that the maker of the covenant obligates himself to keep self-imposed commitments, either on condition of the favored recipient's uh, continued faithfulness or even as a repayment for going along with the terms of the covenant. Now, there are covenants between people. Uh, in a sense, it's the ordinary use of the word. Talk about covenants, even biblically speaking. It's the idea of a solemn mutual agreement and it obligates people uh, to voluntarily assume certain things. Now, in the Old Testament, people were said to have cut a covenant with another person or a group of people. For example, Abraham and Abimelech cut a covenant uh, as equal partners, agreeing that a well in Beersheba belonged to Abraham. You see it in Genesis 21. Jonathan and David cut a covenant together, uh, a covenant of friendship. Jonathan was acknowledging David's right to the throne, even though at that point in time, Jonathan was of higher rank than David. God was the witness of the covenant. Now, sadly, Israel had a pattern of making covenant agreements with foreigners against God's warnings not to do so. Now, a prime example of a covenant between people is marriage. With God as witness, it's a commitment to faithfulness. It's a commitment that is not to be broken. Now, covenants were clearly specified. They were confirmed by oaths, promise. They were witnessed. They were either written or Uh, sealed in some way, and when they were confirmed, they were considered unalterable. Couldn't change them. Now, sometimes they were made by the parties passing between uh, the pieces, uh, divided pieces of a sacrifice. We see that in Genesis 15. Sometimes salt was used. Uh, 
You see the terminology in, uh, in the scriptures of a covenant of salt, uh, signifying a pure and everlasting and valuable covenant. All sometimes people would strike their hands together, join hands together to seal the covenant. These covenants were all often followed by a feast, a meal. And uh, sometimes presents were given as tokens of a covenant. Pillars were raised. Names were given to the place in which the covenant was made. So covenants between people existed, but there are also covenants between God and mankind. And this is where we see its religious use. Uh, The idea is more of not such an idea of a mutual agreement or obligation to voluntarily assume certain uh, stipulations, but more of a command. The idea is more of an obligation imposed by a superior upon an inferior party. But God, as we see again and again and again in Scripture, relates to his people in making covenants, initiating covenants with them. In the Old Testament, God made covenant with, with his people, and then he responded to them in that covenant relationship. He does the same today. There are some major covenants in the Scriptures God made a covenant with Noah, which we're going to look at today. The sign was the rainbow, the promise to never again flood the earth. God made a covenant with Abraham, one of a promised blessing uh, through Abraham to all nations. The sign was circumcision. God made a covenant of law. The sign was the Sabbaths. God made a covenant with David that he would never lack Someone to sit on the throne, culminating in Jesus himself. The sign was a throne. And as we see, God made the new covenant in Christ. In the New Testament, you see a fulfillment of God's covenants and the hope of covenants established in this new covenant in Christ. But a covenant, in summary, established a spiritual relationship between God and his believing people. Now let's look at the covenant that God made with Noah. Noah receives God's first official covenant. And we see it in Genesis chapter 9. God promises not to repeat the flood. The flood will not happen in the way it happened previously. Now this covenant extended beyond Noah to all the animals who had experienced the massive destruction and death associated with the flood And it also extends to us, to all generations. God promises it will not happen again by water. Now, God gave guidelines to ensure his plan. If you look in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1, what we see first is that God encouraged multiplication. Uh, He propagated life. He said, To them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, in verse 1. You look over in verse 7, he says, As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, multiply in it. So God encourages and propagates life. It's the third time in scriptures we've seen God bless humans. He did so in chapter 1 and in chapter 5, and now again he commands them to be fruitful. He gives life. He blessed Noah and his sons at the place of the altar and blesses them. 
He also did something else. He provided for protection of life. If you look at chapter 9 and verse 2, God says, The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. Everything that creeps on the ground, all flesh of the sea, into your hand they are given. Animals would now fear man. As a result of the fall, the, the beasts became wild. Why do you think an animal attacks? Because they're afraid. And God says in his protection of life that the animals would fear man. So there was dominion given over the animals. But there was another protection of life that God gave, and we see it in verse 5. God had just said, you're not not to eat the flesh with the blood. It seems that up to this point, they were uh, supposed to be vegetarians. Now, meat is on the menu. But don't eat it with the blood. And God says in verse 5, I will require your lifeblood from you. From everyone. The lifeblood is required. I will require the life of man. And then we see a bit of poetry in verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Now God is not saying that we can retaliate at will. God is not saying to take the law into your own hands. What God is doing here is instituting government and the powers that be and putting, in essence, into effect capital punishment. He institutes it here in verses 5 and 6 because in verse 6, again, he says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And here's why. For in the image of God, he made man. God values life. God values his image in mankind. And taking the life of another in murder messes up the image of God. And so God is putting power in the hands of the powers that be. He also does something else. He promises to sustain life. He he protects life, he propagates life, but he also promises to provide for life. In verses 4, 5, and 6, and 3, I've given you this food. God is providing for them. Now God also gives a sign to guarantee his promise. We all know what it is. It's a rainbow. Now rainbow has been changed in meaning often. Uh, It also has become... Uh, a name for sandals and a little, uh, you know, a children's kind of a thing. But the rainbow, God has placed the rainbow as a specific sign of this covenant. You see a rainbow, you take notice. Look at the rainbow. We are, in fact, <laughs> you can almost see a rainbow here in these lights. We were driving uh, in Newport, Rhode Island in May. All of a sudden, we were at the breaker. Uh, we were down at the breakers, uh, taking a walk along those mansions there, along the the sea. And all of a sudden, we got we were overtaken by a storm. The rain begins to pelt us. We're running for the car. We get into the vehicle. We start to drive away, and just torrential downpour. About a half an hour later, 
skies opened, and, and a beautiful rainbow appears. Two of them, in fact. Or one, and you know, I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but whatever the case, this rainbow, we stopped for about a half an hour taking pictures of it. It's unbelievable. The most beautiful rainbow we'd seen in our lives. God put a sign, a token of his covenant with Noah and with us. The rainbow stands as any sign of God's promise. It's not a divine afterthought to the flood, by the way. A way of making up to creation for all the destruction. Because God established the covenant relationship prior to the flood in chapter 6, verse 18. And the Hebrew word uh, established literally means to be, he caused it to stand. He caused a covenant to stand with Noah, literally. Now, what's the nature of God's covenant with Noah? The first thing is that it was unilateral. In verse 9, God says, I do establish my covenant with you. In verse 11, God says, I establish my covenant with you. And also in verse 15, I will remember my covenant. God made it. It stands because of him. It doesn't stand because of anything else. It's a unilateral covenant. It's also universal. It's far-reaching in scope. In verse 9, he says, It's to, for you and your descendants... And every living creature with you. Speaking specifically of those that were on the ark. In verse 12, God says, It's between me and you and every living creature with you for all generations. In verse 15, God says, Between me and you and every living creature. Verse 16, Between God and every living creature of all flesh on the earth. It's uh, far-reaching in its scope. It's also unconditional. Unconditional. It wasn't dependent upon what Noah would do. It's not dependent upon what man may or may not do. God says in verse 15, I will remember my covenant. This covenant called for no human response. Just live. Do your thing. Trust me, obey me. But nothing in the, con- in the context called for a response from humans except to do what God calls them to do in life. It was solely a promise and an oath from God. God would act upon his previous commitment. And when he saw the rainbow, as mankind would see the rainbow, God would also act upon his previous commitment. A reminder to us that God is faithful. There's something else about the covenant with Noah. It was unchangeable. It was lasting in nature. God called it an everlasting covenant. He said it was for all generations. Verse 12. He says in verse 16, I will remember the everlasting covenant. The covenant was established and would stand forever. Now God's first covenant here with Noah protected human life. Both human life and also animal life. In the face of the massive destruction of the flood that had happened upon the earth. But that priority on and protection of life remains the foundation of God's relationship with his creation. Neither natural catastrophe like 
floods or hurricanes or earthquakes, nor human sin and the outworking of that sin would prevent God from maintaining his priority on life. God deeply values life. Now the covenant gave confidence. The covenant gave assurance. God was giving Noah and his sons a clear, solid assurance of the continuance of the human race. That they would prosper. They would continue. Now the covenant with Noah points us to a greater covenant. It points us to the new covenant. The new covenant, if you think about it, God's covenants with individuals and nations find final fulfillment in the new covenant in Christ. What do we know about the new covenant? Well, first of all, it was initiated by God. It was unilateral as well. The new covenant was prophesied in Jeremiah 31. God said, behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God is pointing to a change of heart that will happen in his people. And he will bring about. And the new covenant, God's pledge to forgive the sins of his believing people, to put his laws within them, to write them on our hearts, to be our God and to make us his people. It was initiated by God. Unilateral. But the new covenant also deals with our issues, mankind's universal problem, sin. There are two primary things that separate people from God, and they are resolved in the new covenant. The new covenant dealt with the problem of guilt because of sin, the punishment that needed to take place because of our sin. And Jesus solved that by shedding his blood And taking our guilt upon himself. And he says, I will forgive their iniquity. Prophesied. The other problem is rebellion against God. Our propensity to go independent. Our attitude of autonomy and independence from God. It's our tendency to run from God. It's our tendency to follow the destructive tendencies of our hearts. Even when we, when we know the way to walk, we also do otherwise often. God resolves that problem. How does he resolve that problem? He resolves the problem as it was prophesied by writing his law on our hearts. So that it is not just his will imposed from the outside, but it is his will experienced from the inside that we begin to desire what God desires. We desire 
his will. The new covenant was initiated by God. It's, uni- it's unilateral. It also deals with a universal problem. Mankind's sin, guilt, rebellion. But it's also not dependent on people. It's unconditional. The human response is faith. And while it is accepted by man on the basis of faith, it does not hinge on whether someone has faith or not. Because God's purposes in his covenant will be fulfilled regardless of man's response. Man's response does not leave the fulfillment of the covenant in doubt. Isn't that good? See, if we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. We are covenant breakers. God is a covenant maker, and his covenants stand because of who he is. These are not dependent on people. The new covenant is something God accomplishes. It's a creation of God, of a people of God. Of a people for God. The new covenant is summed up in the fact that we will be his people, he will be our God forever. And the certainty lies not in us, but in God as a covenant keeper. He says he will forgive us. He will remember our iniquity no more. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he will remove our sins from us. And he'll write his laws this time, not on tablets of stone, but on the human heart, on changed human hearts. He will transform us. This is God's doing. This is marvelous. There's something else about the covenant. It's everlasting. It's eternal. It doesn't change. When did Jesus initiate this new covenant? It was promised beforehand in the prophet. Jeremiah, in Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah 42.6 says that the Messiah, the Christ, would be the covenant. That Jesus himself would be, is the covenant. When did he institute this new covenant? He instituted this new covenant with his disciples at the time of the Passover meal. The night before he was crucified. We see it in Matthew 26. Let's go there. In Matthew 26 in verse 19. The disciples prepared the Passover. Evening had come. And Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he says, Truly, one of you will betray me. Deeply grieved, each one of them began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. And then, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And he blessed it. And he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body. 
And when he had taken a cup, verse 27, gave thanks, he gave it to them, and here's what he said. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink of it new with you in my Father's kingdom, in that future hope. So he institutes this new covenant around a common meal that they were to share. And as was instructed, it's often as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. The sign of this new covenant being the cup of the Lord. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And each time we drink the cup of the Lord, we gather together and we drink the cup of the Lord as we gather to remember Jesus. We remember that the shedding of the blood of Jesus is how the new covenant was established and by which it stands, this cup, the new covenant. You see it also in Luke 22. The covenant, the promise of the covenant was fulfilled. And it reminds us of the costliness of the covenant. It motivates us out of love and gratitude then to do what pleases God, to abstain from sin. Now, covenant is significant for all who are in Christ. Every moment of every day, we are experiencing the blessings of the covenant. As I went through my week this week and did the the mundane and normal things and made some of the similar mistakes we all make in the course of a day, I kept being reminded that though I am sometimes faithless, though I can't keep covenant, God does. And in the midst of whatever is going on, and I paused a few times this week and said, praise God, the covenant still stands. No matter what, the covenant stands. See, God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He is always faithful. We are not always faithful. Big things and little things. And we see it in the Bible and we see it today. God makes covenants with man and man consistently breaks them. Man makes covenants with man and and breaks them all the time. We see it in marriage. We see it in the marketplace. Contracts. Gone. Signed and then broken. If it was not For God's faithfulness, there would be no lasting covenant. See, God is the author, the unilateral initiator and sustainer of covenant promises. And I'll tell you, there's a big difference between a covenant and a contract. There's a huge difference. You see, in a contract, people exchange goods and services. Every sale is a kind of contract. You may have in your wallet or in your pocket a receipt 
Maybe even uh, a receipt, uh, which is a promise for you to pay next month. In a covenant, though, people do not exchange things. Things are not exchanged. They give themselves. A covenant says, I am yours and you are mine. A contract, that's an agreement because many times two parties can't trust one another. You know those cute little necklace token things, Mizpah, with the two parts, you know, the Lord watch between me and you and we're apart from each other? You know why that was instituted? Because the two parties couldn't trust one another. It was not a beautiful sign of friendship. Whatever the case, two parties can't trust one another, so they set limits to their responsibility. But a covenant is an agreement made in trust. A contract can be revoked. A covenant can't. See, grace is a covenant. Grace is a covenant. God never breaks covenant. We are the recipients, the beneficiaries of God's good covenant promises every moment of every day. And covenant implies responsibility on our part. Acting in trust and obedience to God. And seeing God's covenant of grace as a common thread woven through all of Scripture brings immense comfort and relief and hope. No matter what is going on, no matter what we have done, no matter what may be present. See, God gives us comfort in a time of pain, knowing God is able and He is faithful to all His promises. He gives us relief from the burden and pressure we put on ourselves to do rather than to be in Christ. He says, rest rest in me, my children, rest in me. He gives us hope that in every situation and every circumstance, all will ultimately be well and all is well with our souls. He gives rest to the weary. He gives strength for the weak. He gives healing for the diseased. God does this because he is a covenant-keeping and covenant-making God. God's promise to act on our behalf, to act on behalf of the commitment he previously made to his believing people, will be kept. No fear of God breaking the covenant. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be frustrated. On our part, there is no need for worry or strain or stress or fear. We can actually relax. It will come to pass. And God's unilateral commitment to bless and to save and to provide for the one he draws to himself in grace to faith in Christ, stands forever. And he calls us to active trust and obedience in response. And it is only possible because of Jesus. It is not possible apart from Jesus. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant 
in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. The messenger of the covenant is Jesus, Jesus Christ himself. He is the mediator of the new covenant. The Greek word for mediator signifies a middleman, one who bridges the gap between two disagreeing parties. We were at odds with God due to our sin. The enmity was all ours, and Christ mediates between us. He reconciles us to God through his blood. And Christ takes away the enmity between us, all on our part, and so he makes peace. You see, Noah, he was the mediator of God's covenant with him as the, in his role as the head of his family. Abraham was the mediator as God promised to bless all nations of the earth through him. Moses was the mediator as God promised to be Israel's God. And Israel promised to worship no other God but God. David was the mediator as God promised the throne forever. And Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, by his cross, by his resurrection, he fulfills all the promises God made in the previous covenants. All of them. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that our life is not our own. And we thank you and praise you that you are the initiator and the sustainer of your covenant promises. We praise you, Lord, that we rest in that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.